10, verse 32 through 33. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You really have to start back at the beginning of the chapter to get the full context of what's taking place in the house of Cornelius on this particular occasion. And I would encourage you to do that uh, even while we're studying. That would be fine. But we're going to be walking through some of those verses in just a moment to impress us, I think, with some eternal truths that will make a difference in our lives. Um, I'm glad you're here this morning. I know that we've got a lot of people who are traveling because of the holiday weekend. We've got a lot of our students who are are taking this long weekend as an opportunity to go home and, and visit and remind their parents that they need money, and we're also glad that uh, that you're here this morning with uh, with your worship hat on, that you are uh, here because of your love for the Lord. And for those of you that are joining us online, I mean, we're talking about Texas and Utah and the New England area, uh, Georgia and South Carolina, Tennessee, we've got people who, who contact me on a regular basis and, and let me know how very much they appreciate the fact that we're streaming our services and that they are continuing to join us on Sunday mornings, even though many of them uh, can't get out uh, in order to worship with their home congregation. We're, we're delighted that you are all with us this morning. On the occasions that I have to be able to speak someplace other than the university church, uh, for example, on a summer series, there are congregations all around, uh, not just in our state, but in other states who continue to have summer series, and uh, many of them are kind enough to invite me uh, to come and speak to them. And oftentimes, when on those occasions when Mia is not able to go with me, uh, as soon as I arrive home, one of her first questions is, how did it go? And she will tell you that my common response is, I have no idea. Because oftentimes when I'm speaking to a different audience, it's very difficult to read the audience. You don't know exactly whether or not what you're saying is resonating. You don't know if they're understanding your humor or they just don't think it's funny. (laughs) Kind of like now. Or if you're just not on the same wavelength as they are. So oftentimes I'll say, I have no idea. Because I recognize that there is a dynamic that's taking place in the communication process that doesn't just involve me. It doesn't just involve the the messenger. It also involves, and this is obvious to anyone. You don't have to take Speech 101 to know this. It also involves those who are taking in the message. Speech 101 does tell you that for every message communicated... That there is an encoder and a decoder. There's someone who's presenting the message, and there's, there are those who are uh, receiving that message, hopefully who are understanding, discerning, and assimilating that message so that it will make a real difference in their lives. So all of that is going on when we stand up to speak to you on a Sunday morning or at uh, any other time that we are in a public gathering such as this. And I don't know if you know this. This is kind of insider uh, uh, preacher business, but I will let you know that when preachers go to a congregation to uh, evaluate the work to decide whether or not it might be a good fit for him to go there and preach and and move his family and so on, that obviously the congregation is evaluating the man who is coming. They're evaluating his manner of preaching uh, and, and a lot of other things that are criteria 
that they are using in, in their evaluation process. But here's the secret part. You may not know that when that takes place, the preacher is also evaluating the congregation. And you can tell a whole lot about a congregation by just being with them on one Sunday morning or perhaps one Sunday morning and one Sunday evening. I'm saying all of that to help us to appreciate that when we look at this particular example that Scripture provides for us by inspiration of God about what took place between Peter and Cornelius and his household here in Acts chapter 10, that there is a communication dynamic that simply has to be understood. And that's why I've titled this lesson this morning, What a Crowd, because when Peter got there, at the request of Cornelius and by the direction of God's spirit, uh, he, he did so, and, and, and I, th- I don't know if he was surprised or not, to find a house full of people waiting for him. All he knew that it was that this one man had summoned him and had asked him to come and speak to him words whereby he and his household might be saved. By the way, we're going to come back to that a little bit later in this lesson, if you, if you want to take a sneak peek at chapter 11 and verse 14, this is where Peter is recounting the experience that he had when he visited Cornelius and, and when he imparted to him words of eternal life. And, uh, and the reason why he's recounting that is because this is, as most of you know, the first Gentile convert. And there are some of his Jewish brethren who are kind of pulling him on the carpet and who are demanding an explanation as to why did you go and share the the blessed gospel with a man who's a Gentile. And so he's kind of defending himself and and the reason for for doing that. And and verse verse 14 of chapter 11 tells us exactly what took place, that he might impart to him words whereby he and his household might be saved. That's the bottom line of all of this. And so I'm saying that when, when a preacher tries out, when, when a preacher stands to speak, obviously we're interested in you know, getting the right man who has the right experience and the right education and the right voice and all the rest of those things. But, but the question I want to ask this morning, in light of Acts chapter 10, is what preparation has gone into the audience? Are we prepared to listen to and to assimilate and, and allow God's word to make a difference in our lives? And you may be thinking, well, I'm already a Christian, so I don't, I don't need to hear the gospel in the sense of needing to obey the rudimentary principles of Christianity and become a child of God. Yeah, that's absolutely true uh, of most of you in this audience this morning and, and most of you who are probably watching us online as well. But God's word continues to edify us and build us up and equip us, doesn't it? Even as children of God. Maybe I should say especially as children of God. When you think about it, mathematically, there's only one real chapter or book, rather, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, that tells us over and over again, at least eight times, about what a person needs to do in order to become a Christian and to be forgiven of their sins. All the rest of those letters in the New Testament are written to tell us how to live as Christians. And so the preponderance of the New Testament is there for our instruction, for our edification, and for our guidance. And so, again, the question needs to be asked especially when we're gathered like this in a public setting, is what preparation has gone into the audience to make sure that when the communication of God's word takes place, that not only is it done correctly, is it done faithfully to the word of God, but are we accepting it and receiving that in our hearts? To the best of my knowledge, Jesus never told any of his disciples, take heed how you preach. But he did say on a number of occasions, Take heed how you hear. And so that's going to be uh, the watchword for us this morning as, as we walk through this lesson. 
Now, it goes without saying that a preacher ought to be one who pleases God. That's settled in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. Here's what Paul says there. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, notice how Paul recognizes what an awesome honor and responsibility it is to be entrusted with the word of God. He says to be entrusted with the gospel so we, that is those of us who preach, we speak not as pleasing men but God who is testing our hearts. Notice that when Paul says that when he and his fellow preachers are presenting God's word, they're not so much concerned about how is the congregation taking me, how are they receiving me, how do they perceive me. He's more interested in the God who is evaluating and testing their hearts even at that very moment. But again, the audience also should be one that pleases God. And so this morning, I want us to kind of get a look at the ideal audience in the sight of God and understanding that, that this kind of audience would in turn be ideal for God's messenger. Every gospel preacher loves it when he can read the crowd and know that they, what he's saying is resonating with them, that they are listening. Many times they are actively listening, nodding their heads, not nodding off in a nap, but nodding their heads in agreement to the message and those kinds of things. And that's always gratifying. But, but again, when we look at, at this, uh, really this paradigm, this, this model of, of uh, the ideal audience in Scripture, I, I think it will make a difference in how we perceive our own, our own spiritual activity when we come here to worship God together. So I, I'm just saying that as long as God's will is carried out, the, the Bible teaches that salvation will always be connected to preachers and preaching. And the audience is to whom they preach. I just believe that with all of my heart. I don't think that there will ever be a time before the Lord comes back when there will not be a place for gospel preaching. Because I believe that's a part of God's plan. I know Paul believed that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he said, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I know that was 2,000 years ago, but I still, still believe it's true today. At some level, we need to be communicating God's will to those who do not know God's will so that they too can be saved and have that blessed assurance and that promise of going to heaven. So with that in mind, look again at Acts chapter 10 and, and specifically lock in on verse 33 because I think this contains an inspired description of the ideal audience. And all we're going to be doing in the next few minutes is just walking through that verse and kind of taking it apart, putting it back together and, and seeing how that it proves our premise and, and then allowing that to make a difference in our hearts in our attitudes and in our activities when we come here to worship God and to hear his word. The first thing that really stands out to me in verse 33 is when Cornelius says that we are all here. First thing, when Peter comes in the door, it's as if Cornelius is meeting him eagerly and urgently at the door and reminds him that we are all here. So that just tells me that the audience was already gathered when Peter arrived, and they reflected a unity of purpose. That just means that they were all there for the same reason. They weren't there for a social gathering. They didn't invite Peter over for a cup of coffee. They all understood exactly why he was there. And Cornelius says, I want you to know that, that your audience is already assembled. We are all here. In fact, you've got to back up just a few verses to really nail that down. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 24. The Bible says, And Cornelius was waiting for them, that is Peter and, and the men who were traveling with him, having called together his kinsmen and near friends. 
And that impresses me because that tells me that Cornelius is not only interested in hearing God's word and and anticipating the impact that that will have on his own life, but he wants others that he cares about to have that same impact brought about in their lives. And so we are all here to hear those words. Now, there's three observations I want to make about verse 24 in particular. Number one, how important it is to be punctual because it reflects our attitude about worship. So when Peter arrived, don't miss that, they were all already there. So Peter said, we're here. We're not waiting on anybody. You know, give me another 15 minutes because so-and-so is always late. No, none of that. We are all here. Let's be punctual because that reflects our attitude about what, the importance of what we're doing once we get here. And then secondly, Cornelius realized that what he was about to hear was going to be life-changing and it was going to be dynamic. And I reiterate the point just made. He wanted others to be able to benefit from that and not just himself. Third, Cornelius wanted others to hear what he was about to hear. And I think you can't overstate that, how important that is. By the way, our theme, obviously, for 2021 is win one in 21. And we've been talking about and thinking about, and I've presented a few lessons about church growth and about the importance of soul winning and how that every one of us can soul win. Is that a right term? We can win souls. That sounds a whole lot better. We can win souls at some level. Not everybody can be able to sit down at a kitchen table and, and carry someone from A to Z in the conversion process. But there's something, there's something that you can do utilizing your talents, whether it's one talent or ten talents, that will bring others into the kingdom. I just believe that with all my heart. Well, having said that, Cornelius is a commercial, I think, for friendship evangelism. Even though he was not the one who was going to be the messenger, he was going to be a recipient of the message, just like everybody else in his house that day. He wanted to invite and bring about everybody that he could to get into his house or his living room or wherever they were, and to be able to hear the message that Peter was going to present. So even though you may not be able to actively communicate God's word in such a way that that person, you wind the conversation up and that person says, basically, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized. They want immediately uh, to be baptized in, into Christ. Even though you may not feel like you're capable of doing that, there, there's something that you can do. There are friends that you can gather together in order to be able to collectively hear God's word spoken. Now, an interest in salvation, and I think this is an important part of this whole process and and what took place here. An interest in salvation is what brought them together. And I think that's reflected in the energy and the effort that was expended in being there when, when the messenger arrived with the message. Now, I hate to say it, but there, there are some who don't always have that kind of altruistic motive when it comes to listening to God's word. We, we understand that. There, there, there are people sometimes that may sit in a Bible class, and they don't really say it out loud, but on the inside, they, they're saying to the teacher, I dare you to try to interest me. I, I've, I've, I, sometimes I've been in some classes where you can kind of read that on a person's face. I dare you to try to interest me. But, but, but if that's the case, then they're absolutely right. Because interest requires not just scintillating material and, and not just an exciting presentation, but, but cooperation on the part of a hearer. If someone has determined you're not going to interest me in God's word, then that's a self-fulfilled prophecy in my mind. 
That's pretty much going to be true. It's going to be very difficult. And here's why. Because what is true in the world of finances is also true in the spiritual world. That is, where there is no investment, there is no interest. And so if I don't have anything invested in, in, in spiritual values, it's going to be very difficult for me to be interested in that. Here's, here's the second thing that took place and that was actually said by Cornelius that day. We are all here was the first thing. And then he said, and this phrase is, I think, equally important, present in the sight of God. Now, now here's a man who's not yet a New Testament Christian. But obviously he is a believer. He is a theist. He's, he believes in God or else he wouldn't have said this. And he's very much aware of why Peter has come there. And he's come at Cornelius' request. So here's a reverent aspect of this. It's a, it's a respectful dynamic that's taking place that I think we, we would be remiss if we didn't really notice and, and take to heart. This reverent aspect of the audience is seen in that phrase. They, they knew that they were there. As I mentioned a moment ago, for more than just social interaction, they weren't there just to share a cup of coffee or a donut. They were gathered in the very sight and in the very presence of God himself. Now, I'm going to allow that to marinate in your heart for just a moment. And I hope that every one of us that's here physically and and who's joining us online this morning recognizes that when we gather to worship God, that this same dynamic is taking place. That, that we, we ought to be respectful and, and reverent in our approach to God because he is, I remind you, the sovereign God of the universe. And, and Christ assures us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, that where two or three are assembled in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Does that make a difference in your approach to worship? It should. It really ought to make a difference when we, re- when we recognize that the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings is in our midst when we gather and assemble here to worship him on these occasions when we're brought together. Now, I'm a firm believer, and I'm going to indicate this as being my judgment. This is, this is Randy, not necessarily gospel, so you can take this or leave this. But I, I really believe that worship services ought to be a celebration and not a funeral. And I've mentioned that in some recent lessons. I've been in some congregations that... You know, you walk into the building and you think, this is just a cemetery with lights. I mean, it was so dead. And it was so cold, you could ice skate down the aisles. Some of you are nodding because you probably have visited that same congregation. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, but that's not what God, in, I think, envisioned for us when he said, I want you to come together to worship me and don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10, 25, and all the rest. All of those things indicate that worship Ought to be a time when we come together and celebrate what God has done for us and what he's doing for us now and what he's promised to do for us in the future. I believe Brother Carl was exactly right. Even when we gather around the table, we're not here just to focus on how much our Lord suffered. That's a part of it, to fully appreciate his sacrifice. But we're also, aren't we, to remember what took place three days later when the women went to the tomb and that tomb was empty because our Lord had risen from the grave. We are serving a risen Savior. We need to never forget that. But, but understanding what's taking place here in Cornelius' house and their recognition that they were doing what they were doing in the presence and in the sight of the Lord indicates that our celebrations ought to be conducted with reverence and respect for a sovereign and supreme God. All assemblies 
are, are gathered in the sight of God. And realizing that ought to, and, and these are the words of the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 12, 28. He said, ought to cause us to have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. Now, let me say this before I move from this point and, and you walk away and misunderstood what I have said. While I believe that worship services ought to be celebratory, I don't believe that they should be pep rallies. Because I'm not, I'm not a believer at all that we should come here and try simply to arouse our emotions so that psychologically we can achieve some kind of high and leave thinking we've worshipped God. That's not what worship is. I do believe that true worship will have an impact on our emotions. There's no doubt about that. But we haven't come here simply to arouse our emotions and hope that that is spiritual service that God will accept. That's, there's a whole lot of difference in those two ideas, and I wanted to make that clear. So translated into practical terms, that just means that if I come to worship, and now I'm going I'm to stop preaching and start meddling, because that's what I do. Meddling's the name. Meddling's the game. When I come to worship, and I'm talking to the people around me and distracting other worshipers, when I'm on my phone, or I'm texting other people when I'm sitting in a place of worship, when I'm playing with the babies around me, all of those things do not picture the reverence and the respect for what we have come here to do. And I say that in love, but I hope that we understand that we, when we are gathered here to worship, we are here in the presence, in the sight of the God of heaven, and that we will conduct ourselves accordingly. Now, folks, if truth is being presented, it's being done with the authority of the Lord himself. I'll remind you that a preacher is just a herald for the king. That's, what, that's the way scripture describes him. So the preacher is not the letter writer. He did not originate the message, but he is the mail carrier. And we have that not only responsibility, but that great honor. The third thing that Cornelius says is we're all here present in the sight of the Lord. And then the next two words are to hear. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. It said that for a long time. But you know what? 2,000 years later, even after Paul penned those words, it's still true. Faith still is developed and, and initiated and, and grown and cultivated in the heart of someone who is into the word. You cannot have biblically defined faith without being in the word, at least at some level. And so to hear truth is a noble purpose for which to gather. And Cornelius understood that. We are here, he said, in order to hear. You know, I've stood before a lot of audiences in my many years of preaching. And I've not always been convinced that everyone came here to hear truth. Now, I'm not saying that to be ugly, but simply to be candid about the situation. Because, I mean, when you gather a good number of people, hundreds of people together, the odds are, mathematically, that not everybody's going to be there with the same motivation in mind. In fact, I will say this with tongue-in-cheek. There have been times when I've been shaking people out of the church foyer, and they come by and shake my hand and say, I enjoyed it. I, I have to wonder, are they talking about the sermon or the nap? You know what I'm talking about. And so when, when, when we come here to worship, we understand that we have an awesome responsibility, a great privilege it is, but also a responsibility to worship God reverently and to make sure that we are, in fact, hearing. And I mean in every sense, we are hearing God's word so that it can change our lives. If I worship with one eye on the clock and one foot in the aisle, that's not the attitude that God wants from those who have come to worship him. 
A recent survey among churches, not just ours, but all Christendom, listed as the top question, as the top question for evaluating a good sermon was this question, how long does it last? I pulled this out of my files this this week, and let me share it with you. I'm, I'm almost through with the lesson, so let me just insert this before we quit. It's called, I Was Lost, But You Were in a Hurry. I attended church this morning. You would not remember me. I may be 18 or 80, but I was there, and I was hunting for something, and I almost found it. And you and the congregation sang hymns about the living Lord that made my heart beat faster. And I felt a tight choking sensation in my throat as your preacher described the condition of a lost person. And I said to myself, I'm lost. And he is talking about me. From the way he speaks, salvation must be very important. And I looked around about you at the pews near me and you were listening and, and you seemed to think that the words were important too. And all these people are so concerned, I thought, and they wanted me to be saved too. At last, the minister finished his appeal and asked you to stand and sing another of the beautiful songs that you seem to know so well. I swaddled a lump in my throat, and I wished that I knew the joy with which you sang. The preacher looked at me and started telling me once again how that I could have this joy, but his but his words were drowned out by a buzzing around me. And when I glanced around... You were putting on your little girl's coat and telling her to get her things together. And I looked up on, uh, on the other side, and I, I saw you rearranging your purse and possessions. And looking in front of me, I saw you frown at your watch as if time were running out on something. And suddenly, I didn't want to look at you anymore. My eyes burned and my throat hurt. And my feet were so tired, I could not have walked toward that pleading minister if I had tried. Then I realized... You didn't really care. This salvation the preacher had been telling me about wasn't that important at all. You didn't care that I was lost. You wanted, only wanted to get away. And so I waited until the service was over and walked out among you, alone and still lost. I'm not saying that to put anyone on a guilt trip. But I am sharing that with you to help each of us recognize the awesome responsibility to communicate to those around us that what we are doing is the most important thing that we could be doing with this time on a beautiful Sunday morning. We are worshiping a sovereign God. We are interested in the souls of people. If we have to postpone lunch to 3 o'clock this afternoon, so be it. If we could see someone baptized into Christ this day. If someone can make that decision, that monumental, earth-shaking decision that I want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want you to know we have time for you and that we would be delighted to assist you in any way that we can. So Peter said, when I was at Cornelius' house, Cornelius understood that. And he said, we're here in order to be able to hear that message. Hearing is absolutely necessary in God's plan for learning and coming to the Father. Even Jesus said that in John 6, 45. Take a look at that passage sometime. It isn't enough just to be present in body. We have to ask ourselves, what am I present here to do? Here's, I think, a fifth thing, if I've got my, maybe the fourth thing. To hear all things that have been commanded you of the Lord. 
There's, a, there's an additional phrase that Cornelius uses. This audience was not interested in being entertained by some Hollywood preacher. They weren't interested in hearing someone's musical talent being exhibited. I, I recently saw a church marquee that read, let us, and I'm not making this up, and you probably know that. You've been around enough and read enough church signs. This sign at a church said, let us entertain you. And then the concert performance dates were listed immediately below that particular message. I've mentioned to you before that when Mia and I and our family were living in the Memphis area, we, we worshipped around the corner from a church that advertised itself as the flock that rocks. That's what we come to, sadly, in the religious world today. Neil Postman has a fascinating little book entitled Entertaining Ourselves to Death. And I'm afraid that sometimes some of that is even caught in the church of our Lord. We're more interested in entertaining and being entertained than we are to be here so that we might worship God, honor him, edify one another, and build one another up in the most holy faith. But I know these people here in Acts 10, they were not interested in current events for current events' sake. They weren't interested in social counseling. They weren't interested in feel-good messages. They gathered to hear what had been commanded of the Lord. And until we do what the Lord has commanded us to do, folks, let me tell you, there are not enough feel-good messages in the world to make us feel good about our spiritual standing before God. They were mature enough to realize that temporal messages only produce temporary results. And they were interested in learning how that God forgives sins and how that he will and can grant eternal life. Fifth, he says, we're all here in the sight of God to hear all, all commanded. They weren't gathered just to hear Peter present a part of the gospel message and leave them hanging. This was not a cliffhanger sort of situation. Peter was there to tell them all that they needed to know in order to be able to get their lives, their hearts, and their souls right before God. They did not take, as some preacher of a past generation has pointed out, they did not take the cafeteria approach to the Word of God. And you know what I mean by that. When you go to a cafeteria, you don't eat everything on the menu. Some of you need to be taking notes on this. You don't eat everything that's there. You're allowed to go by a buffet bar and you pick out what you want and you leave the rest. And sometimes people can have that approach to their Christianity as well. I'm just not going to ignore those things that make me uncomfortable and I'll do what I want to do. That's not Christianity, folks. That's just fulfilling our own desires. So these people at Cornelius' house were not interested in just what the preacher thought, what he had dreamed, or what he had experienced to be right, or even his pragmatic approach on philosophical issues. They wanted to hear, and they came expecting to hear, all things commanded of God. There's one more thing I want to point out about what took place in Cornelius' house that day, and I think this is a wonderful way to end this study. And that's simply to note that when Peter got through presenting all things commanded him of God to that people, that group of people who had receptive hearts, and who were desirous of hearing that saving message, everyone there obeyed the truth. And, and that's a wonderful thing. I've often said that Acts, the 8th chapter, probably presents the, the classical, uh, most desired response of any soul winner on the planet. You remember when Philip uh, began at that scripture and presented to the Ethiopian eunuch, he preached unto him Jesus. And the eunuch, after a little while, after they had been studying for a while, said, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Isn't that ideal? 
when you get to the point in sharing the gospel with someone and they're the ones who bring it up. What in the world would keep me from wanting to be baptized right now? I mean, here's some water. Why don't we go ahead and do that? That's ideal. And that's the soul winner's dream. And I think a large part of that is, is taking place right here. One preacher asked another preacher on a Monday morning, as preachers are sometimes known to do, how did things go yesterday? That is, at the congregation where you preach. And he said, good. He said, did you have any responses? He said, sure did. Every one of them said no. Well, people respond one way or the other, don't they? And sometimes it's no. But on this occasion, everyone there said yes. And God needs to be glory, glorified for that. The Bible doesn't list any questions about the message of salvation. It doesn't seem that there were any points where they said, we need further elucidation and, and we'll think about it and get back to you. It doesn't uh, list any of those kinds of questions or any excuse making. No hesitancy whatsoever on their part. Peter came specifically to tell them words whereby they could be saved. As we already noted from chapter 11 and verse 14. And having heard those words, they immediately, immediately obeyed God's plan to save. They believed God's word. They, they repented of their past sins. They were baptized, that is, immersed in water, and thus they were saved from their past sins. I preached on this message and, and this particular occasion one time, and someone came to me later and said, well, how, how, how do you know that they were saved from their past? That's kind of a, a leap in logic, isn't it? No, because the Bible tells us so. Later, when Peter is again recounting his experience in presenting the gospel to the first Gentiles, in Acts 15, in verse 11, he says this, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. That He's basically saying, if they weren't saved, then neither are we. Just as surely as God has saved us, those people who obeyed the gospel that day at Cornelius' house, they also were saved from their past sins. Surely. Surely we would have more conversions and more edification in the faith if we had more audiences like the one that was gathered at Cornelius' house. You know, there's more involved in a, in, in a, in a good gospel meeting than just God and, and the best preacher around. I think we all know that at some intuitive level. There's more involved in good worship assemblies than just what goes on between the preacher's ear and what come, comes out from his lips. The audience has a great deal to do with salvation, with being an ideal assembly, and with worship that is acceptable to God. I want you to know that, and I want you to know that I know that, that we're all being evaluated. Someone has aptly said that when we come to worship, God is the audience, and he is evaluating our hearts, our motives, and, and, and our, 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 even our logic, and the enthusiasm with which we approach this wonderful opportunity. So you help determine whether the audience is acceptable unto God. But I want to end this study by going back to that last point. When they heard the message that Peter presented to them, they said, that is exactly what I need to do, and that's what I want to do. And there may be people in this audience this morning who are not yet New Testament Christians. We're not going to leave here without giving you an opportunity to make your life right with God. And we've got the time for you, as I've already established. And we want you to know how desperately we would love to see you become a New Testament Christian by repenting of your past sins, courageously confessing your belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and allow us to baptize you into Christ. And you will leave this place as a brand new creature this morning. The old, the old man or woman of sin has died, 
And now you are a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And if that's what you need to do, won't you come while we stand and while we sing? When my way drear, precious Lord, linger near.